Welcome to the Page Master Podcast, a podcast that brings you wisdom and knowledge, which is the stability of our times and the strength of our salvation. In each episode, we deliver undiluted truth that will shape your perspective and empower you with the keys of the kingdom. If you want something sugar-coated, get a donut. Now, here's your host, Adams Allison. Hello and welcome to today's episode on the podcast, Page Master's Keys of the Kingdom. In our last episode, we began a series titled The Ten Virgins based on the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins from Matthew 25. I'll give a summary of what we discussed on the last episode and then we'll move on to today's topic or today's focus. We spoke about the ten virgins and what they symbolize. They symbolize the church. They represent the church of Jesus Christ. These virgins are pure. That's the reason they are called virgins. And that means they are faithful. That means they are dedicated to Christ. We did something in the previous episode. We made a contrast between the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the faithful and evil servants in the book of Luke chapter 12. In this contrast, we discovered something that the entire body of Christ, the church, has two categories of people in it. The first are the faithful and then there's also the wicked. Or the evil according to Luke chapter 12. Now in this parable of the faithful and evil servants we discover that the fate of the evil servant is the same as the unbelievers that means they lose their salvation but as for the faithful servants speaking about those who are faithful in the body of Christ they also have two categories that is what this parable of the ten virgins focuses on the wise and the foolish. So we have the body of Christ broken down to faithful and evil and then we have the faithful broken down into wise and foolish. Our prayer and aim of this discussion is to help us become part of the wise. Not just being faithful but also being wise. Something else we discussed in our previous episode is about how and why the Bible says these ten virgins went forth to meet the bridegroom. What does it mean to meet the bridegroom? I believe it's clear to us that the bridegroom is Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean for them to go forth to meet him? Some translations use the word, they went out to meet him. In our discourse, we found out from the book of Hebrews chapter 13 that to go forth to meet Christ means that we have to abandon the city. To do that, we have to find out first, what is the city? In our discussion, we discovered that the city represents three things social status or reputation, the pleasures of sin which last but for a moment, and the treasures of Egypt which represents privilege, wealth, and opportunities. These things are not bad in themselves except for the pleasures of sin that last but for a moment. The point about abandoning the city is not about isolation or being a recluse. No, it's about priorities when we have a conflict of interest between the city and our pursuit of Christ. The admonition 
is to always place value in our pursuit of Christ. Always prioritize our pursuit of Christ. That is the message. That is the emphasis here. The emphasis has nothing to do with being a recluse. It has to do with prioritizing our pursuit of Jesus, going forth to meet the bridegroom. I believe that is clear. So, going further, we're going to discuss now what it now means to leave the city. What does it really mean to leave social status behind, pleasures of sins behind, and the treasures of Egypt behind? Why this distinction is so important is this. Some people actually abandon the city only to replace it with another city. Some people abandon the city of the world only to replace it with the city of religion. What do I mean by this? There are those who have abandoned their social status only to cling to another form of social status. A classic example is Gautama. He was once a prince living in a royal palace, but in search for meaning, he abandoned royalty only to end up becoming Buddha. So he had left one social status and clinged to another social status. Something that brought him respect again. This did not bring him closer to Christ or to God. It brought him another form of self-exaltation. That is not what it means by leaving the city. To leave the city, the end of your journey must be Christ. The virgins left the city to be with the bridegroom. That must be the end of our departure from the city. We don't forsake the city to go into another city. We forsake the city to be with Jesus. That's the message. So, there are those who forsake the pleasures of sin only to embrace what we call penance. They begin to pay for their sins. This is prideful. The normal human instinct revolts against it. The human instinct prefers to work for their salvation. That is where the problem is. That is the reason it's important to realize when you leave the pleasures of sin, you must embrace Christ, not penance. You can't pay for your sin. A classic example is the Catholic system. They believe in paying for each crime that they have committed in the past. So when they confess their sins, the next thing is say this or do this to atone for your sins. Christ has already paid the atonement sacrifice for our sins. We don't need to atone for our sins anymore. So leaving the city also means abandoning the pleasures of sins and also that penance. We can't replace sin with penance. The third thing we see here is since the city also means abandoning the treasures of Egypt, some people abandon the treasures of Egypt only to amass the wealth in the church. I call this the gospel of materialism, prosperity without purpose. There's nothing illegitimate about it in the eyes of the law. They're not stealing money, but they're not amassing it. There's no redistribution of wealth to the poor or to the needy. There's no purpose to it. Just amassing and amassing. This is not Christianity. This is not what Christ calls us to do. This is not what it means to leave the city. These are people building empires on themselves. This is wrong. That is Pentecostalism, not Pentecostalism. So the essence of what I've said so far is to show us that it's important for us to know what it really means to leave the city. It's not just enough to forsake social status, pleasures of sins, or the treasures of Egypt. We must go beyond that. Christ must be at the end. So let us refresh our mind from Hebrews to pain and see what the Bible says about leaving the city. It says we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have the right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. 
Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gates. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. From this analogy, we see three comparisons made. The first is the camp or the tabernacle of Israel and outside the altar. The second is the city of Jerusalem and outside the cross of Calvary. The third is our own city, our own personal experiences. We have no continuing city here, but let us go out and bear the reproach of Christ. So what do we see as a repeated theme here? The altar, the cross, the reproach of Christ. This is the definitive factor for leaving the city. When you leave the city, these are the things you must embrace. The sacrifice of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the reproach of Christ, and the altar. If you are not offering yourself on God's altar, if you are not bearing the reproach of Christ, if you are not bearing the cross of Jesus, you have not left the city. No matter how much uh, social status you left behind, no matter how much pleasure of sin you left behind, no matter how much wealth you left behind, these things must be in exchange for something spiritually superior. That is the essence. The problem is that many people leave these things but don't exchange it for Christ. That is why the symbol is the cross or the, or the altar. What are you exchanging your social status for? What are you exchanging your city for? If you have abandoned the city, what have you gained in exchange? That is the question. That is the position we find ourselves when we are in pursuit of Christ. We leave the city, we must embrace Christ. So we've seen in our previous podcast in an extensive explanation what the city is. Now we have seen what it means to leave the city. Now we have seen the definitive factor about leaving the city. So now we want to see a practical explanation of what it means to leave the city from the life of Moses. Hebrews chapter 11 from verse 24 to 27. The Bible tells us here, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. First thing we see is that he esteemed the reproach of Christ. This means he placed a premium on the cross. He saw value in suffering for Jesus. And this theme is weaved all through scriptures in those people who God asks us to emulate. You see the apostles in the book of Acts chapter 5, when the Sanhedrin called them and told them to stop preaching the name of Jesus Christ, they flogged them publicly. That was humiliating. And they sent them on their way, warning them never to preach in the name of Jesus. However, in verse 41, we learn something interesting. The Bible says about these apostles, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. See, it's not enough to go through the process. The question is, how do we treat the process? Like the saying goes, it's not what you go through, but how you go through. 
It's not enough to say you suffered for Jesus. Oh, it is because I did something right that I am being punished. It is because I preached the gospel and I'm being punished. It is because I believed in Jesus and I'm being punished. The question is, what was your attitude when you suffered those things? Did you rejoice or did you complain? Those who have left the city rejoice in the sufferings of Christ. That is what it means to place value on the reproach of Christ. He esteemed the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the riches or the treasures in Egypt. At the end of the tunnel, it's not just light, it will be glory. So there's nothing to fear or to worry about when we suffer persecution. In fact, there's much to gain. The attitude, therefore, should be rejoicing. Premium, place a premium on that persecution. Place a premium on the cross of Jesus. The second thing we see about Moses leaving the city, the Bible says Moses, by faith, he forsook Egypt, which means he did not leave Egypt because of convenience. He left Egypt because of faith. God had given him an instruction. God had revealed to him what his destiny would be. And because of that, he made a move. That was the same thing Abraham did. The Bible says about Abraham that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. If you notice, this theme seems to repeat itself again. Not out of convenience, but out of faith. They didn't do things because it was a, because where they were going to was a comfort zone. They didn't even know what they were going to see. They did not know whether they were going to become richer or better. Whether they were going to become more comfortable or not. They didn't know. There was no such thing as a physical guarantee. Only faith. So, living the city means you have to live by faith. The next thing we see that Moses did was that the Bible says, Moses not fearing the wrath of the king. This is critical. And I think this is the part I enjoy most about Moses forsaking the city in quotes. He did not fear the wrath of the king. Now, the king was not just the emperor of Egypt. He was the grandfather of Moses by adoption. Remember, the daughter of Pharaoh adopted Moses when she found him in the river Nile. So here, a relationship must have been built over the years. Moses was about 40 years old when it entered into his heart to visit his people, Israel. So this was not a young man, he was not a teenager, this was a man who had known the emperor for years. So when the Bible says he did not fear the wrath of the king, he wasn't just speaking about terror, he was speaking about sentiments. There is a fear of terror, but there is a greater fear of sentiments. When you are sentimental about a relationship, it is hard to break it. It's easier to break a relationship when you know it's there. Oh, this man is violent. Oh, this man is disabled. He beats me all the time. He insults me all the time. But when it's a different situation of the man loving you all the time, how do you break away when the Lord tells you to leave? It will break the heart of the king to see his grandson leave. And most of you may not know this, but Moses was to be heir to the throne. So he should have been king after the, his grandfather. But instead of that, we choose to suffer affliction with the children of Israel. Which is the last point we see here. Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. Meaning, he chose to suffer with the people who have also done the same thing as he is doing. Those who do not fear the king. Those who have put an end to sentiments. Those who are forsaking Egypt by faith. Those who are living by faith. 
and those who esteem the reproach of Christ as greater riches. So this is what it means to be the city for you and I. And the essence of this whole discussion is to let you know the quality of life and sacrifice that the wise and foolish virgins had. This is how much price they paid in their pursuit of Jesus. And like we said in the previous podcast, if they did this much and yet a category of them was still called foolish, then it behooves us to know what it means to be foolish. If not, we will suffer great loss that we can even imagine. And many of us listening to this podcast can testify that we have not yet attained this level of sacrifice and devotion in our pursuit of Christ. How then can we call ourselves wise virgins? We don't even qualify to be foolish virgins. Where do we stand? That is the question. Where do we stand? So now, to the crux of the matter that we promised to discuss today. What distinguishes the wise virgins from the foolish virgins? Let's refresh ourselves with the verses of scripture from Matthew 25 again. From verse 2 to verse 4, it says, Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lambs and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lambs. To appreciate the difference between the foolish virgins and the wise virgins, we first have to notice how much similarities they have. First of all, both of them are virgins. That means they are both pure and faithful. Secondly, they both go forth to meet the bridegroom. That means they are forsaking the city. Thirdly, they both have burning lambs. That means they are the light of the world. Fourthly, they both have oil in their lambs. That means they have the Holy Spirit. These people are spirit-filled. They have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. However, they differ in one regard. The wise carry a vessel of oil and the foolish do not. And the consequences are so far apart. The wise get to dine with the bridegroom while the foolish are locked out. That is how precious having the vessel of oil is. That is how important having that extra vessel of oil is. To illustrate this difference, let's look at it this way. You are about to go out into the dark. So you take your lamp, fill it with oil and kindle a fire and then you launch out. This is what the wise and the foolish virgins did. The foolish virgins on on one hand, when they launched out, they launched out thinking the bridegroom will soon appear. So we don't need an extra oil. They did not envision that the night will be long and dark. On the other hand, the wise virgins, they were more pragmatic. They were thinking of the alternatives. They were thinking of contingencies. What if the bridegroom delays? And he did delay. So after they had filled their lamps with oil, they filled their vessels with oil. That was their reserve. That was their contingency plan. If the night becomes longer than anticipated. Notice the order. The lamp is filled first and then the vessel is filled second. This order is very important. It means the lamp gets the oil first and the vessel gets the oil last. As we go on, you understand the importance of this sequence. So let's start by distinguishing the symbolic message behind the lamp and the vessel of oil. Some have said the vessel has no significance. It's just a way of the Bible telling you the oil was carried along. Since oil cannot be carried in human hands, so they had to use a word to conceptualize this. 
That is very misleading. The Holy Spirit authored the scripture. That means if he needed a word to express his intentions, he could have created it. After all, Jesus is the word of God. What does it take to create the words needed to communicate his message? Let us remove that fallacy from our mind that, is so, that sometimes the scripture uses words just to fill in the gaps. It doesn't. God cannot be at the mercy of our language. Never. So what does this lamp represent? The lamp represents the ministry of the word of God. Listen, the scripture tells us, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is the word of God. This same lamp is spoken of in the book of Proverbs as the commandment. It says, For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instructions are the way of life. That's Proverbs 6.23. So when you go through scripture, you begin to notice this theme about the word of God being symbolized as a lamp. But this is the interesting thing about this word. It is not private. It is public. That's why it's called the lamp. That's why the scripture tells you in Matthew 5.14 that you are the light of the world, a city set upon a hill that cannot be hidden. This light is to be projected. So this word, this ministry of the word is a public thing. It's a public ministry. That's why Jesus told us in the book of Luke chapter 8 verse 16 that no one when he has lit a lamp covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. So each time the scripture speaks about the lamp, it speaks about it as something to be projected for all to see. That is what the wise and the foolish virgins set out with, a public ministry of the word of God. It doesn't matter whether you're a preacher or a working class person, a business person. Everyone has a ministry of the word of God. Remember, the fivefold ministry is designed to train the saints for the work of ministry. So each one has that ministry of the word, just different platforms. Some have the pulpit platform, some have the consulting platform, some have the counseling platform, some have the policy formulation platform. Whatever your platform, you have a ministry of the word. You must project it for the nations to see. How about the, the vessel of oil? The vessel of oil is more private than public. That's why the Bible says we have this treasure in eating vessels. So what does this eating vessel represent? It represents the body. Your human body is the vessel. Your spirit man is where your lamp is. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 20 verse 27, the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching the inner depths of his heart. But speaking about our body as vessels, look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, from verse 7 to 11, it reads, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for jesus sake that the life of jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh notice the theme is the body it speaks about the earthen vessel it speaks about the body and mortal flesh that is how he describes this vessel that hosts the treasure if you remember the analogy we used we said the oil fills the lamp first before it fills the vessel that means what this treasure is in earthen vessel is the overflow 
of the Spirit is the overflow of the Holy Ghost from our spirit man to our body. Not many people have this overflow. This is what distinguishes the wise from the foolish. Before I give other scriptural examples, let's analyze something important in this passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians. If you notice, the effect of having this overflow in our mortal body is this, that though we are hard pressed on every side, yet we are not crushed. It means that Though we are perplexed, we are never in despair, we never lose hope. Though we are persecuted, we never feel forsaken or neither are we ever forsaken. Though we are struck down, we are never destroyed. That means this gives us a bounce back ability. It gives us an endurance capacity. That is the essence of this overflow of the Holy Spirit. If you remember the most consistent theme in our discourse, on the parables of the ten virgins has been suffering for Christ. If we don't have this overflow, we can't endure. Now to get a great, greater perspective of what we are enduring, let's go to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 22 verse 41 to 44. It reads, And he, speaking of Jesus, was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Then verse 44, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Notice he was only able to endure the agony to pray more after the angel strengthened him. Why did the angel have to appear to strengthen him? Because it was his body that needed strength. There is an apex in prayer that we cannot enter into except our body is strengthened by the Lord. That's why the Bible says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. The flesh needs to be empowered by the overflow of the Holy Spirit. This is where we'll wrap it up for this episode of the podcast. In our next episode, we will go deeper into this thought and discover how to get this overflow of the spirit and what is the dimension of the spirit we have in this overflow. Thanks for listening in. I hope you will join us in our next episode.